This is The Saucer Life, a podcast in which we examine concepts, events, or people orbiting the world of flying saucers. Few preconceptions, snark when justified, no belief, no debunking. This is I Yam What I Yamski, a nice up-to-date reference to a 1933 Popeye movie for you. You're welcome. I'd known about the Scoriton incident for a long time, probably almost as long as I'd known about George Adamski. I'd read summaries over the years, but the whole story eluded me, mostly because Eileen Buckle's book, The Scoriton Mystery, was always so expensive, and moving beyond the book and getting into the critiques of the book when I hadn't actually read the book seemed kind of uncouth. And honestly, the sort of thing that really, really annoys me about a lot of people commenting in ufology, oh, this, this, is, this is no good. I'm not a fan of this. Have you read it? No, I haven't. Uh, and th- the world really has that problem. So then I found a copy uh, used for a, a really reasonable price, or, or maybe it wasn't a reasonable price and I just had more money uh, that day. I don't know, but I picked it up and I think I threw a photo of it up on Instagram. And within a few days, a listener, M, from somewhere far away, got in touch with all sorts of even harder to find information about Scoriton and some of the people surrounding it. And thus, I was sort of convinced to do an episode on Scoriton, finally. So this is the plan. We're going to cover the story as presented in Eileen Buckle's book, then responses to it, and then later revelations. So if you're listening and you think I'm missing something vitally important, don't worry. I'm getting to it. Probably. So our story begins... Well, our story begins in the mid-60s, but the book doesn't. Buckle does something pretty smart, and spends the first three chapters of the Scoriton mystery giving readers a quick summary of the UFO phenomenon since 1947 and some of the key stories that will play a role in the book. We'll skip that bit uh, because if you've listened to the show for any length of time, you're probably familiar with them, at least as much as the first part of the Scoriton mystery would make you familiar with them anyway. So the book was published in 1967, but the story begins with Eileen Buckle, our author and narrator, getting interested in UFOs in 1964 after reading an issue of Flying Saucer Review, a British publication we've dipped in from time to time on the show. She soon joins Bufora, the British Unidentified Flying Saucer Research Organization, or Association, rather, um, and rises to the level of National Executive Committee. And there she befriends Norman Oliver, the membership secretary of the organization. Oliver becomes Buckle's co-investigator in this story and will play a larger role later on. So Oliver and Buckle both came to the UFO scene out of an interest in astronomy. Oliver as a hobby and buckled through her science studies at school. And she would go on to be a nurse, but leave the field to take care of her sick mother, which is one of those little details I'd like to see in UFO books. How did people get involved in this topic? Buckle mentions that a lot of people come to the UFO field out of a love of stars and space, uh, sort of from a factual perspective. And I kind of wonder if that's still true. I don't know one way or the other. Now, in the autumn 1965 issue of the 
of the of the Bufora Journal, there appeared a story about a UFO sighting called the Scoriton Affair. And I should mention here that in some places, like the Bufora article, Scoriton is spelled with two R's. In Buckle's book, The Scoriton Mystery, it's spelled with only one. Both seem to be correct because that's how English works. This is the story as it appeared in the Bufora article. On June 7th, 1965, between 10.30 and 11 p.m., Mr. E. Arthur Bryant, who is an ex-prison guard, was sitting in his cottage, which is situated near Hawson Farm in the hamlet of Scoriton. He became aware of a humming sound like the noise of a ship's turbine. Going outside, he saw a blue lighted object of the apparent size of a pea held at arm's length, approaching in the sky from a southwest direction over an adjacent hill. The object passed directly over the cottage, and a curious noise resembling that made by a slamming door was heard at this juncture. The course of the object was not uniform. It made two quick deviations from its route, but each time came quickly back on course. Running around the cottage, Mr. Bryant saw the blue object descending a few fields away. The humming ceased as it vanished down to earth and was not heard again at any time. The next morning, Mr. Bryant went to the spot where he estimated the object had come to earth. He found foliage singed and withered in the vicinity and in a lane several pieces of metal of somewhat unfamiliar appearance. The burned foliage was on trees and bushes at a height of about 13 feet and extended for some 50 feet along the length of the hedgerow bordering the lane. Grass in an adjoining field was scorched over an oval area and there were three circular burn marks arranged in a triangular formation, each being about six feet from the others. If the blue object had taken off from this field and continued on the southwest to northeast course it was pursuing when seen by Mr. Bryant, it would have passed close to a fir copse as it departed. The firs, in fact, were scorched and twisted in what, in that event, would have been the object's direct line of flight. Mr. Bryant told nobody of his observations and on the next day conducted a further search of the site. He found on this occasion a small turbine-like fitting with curved blades, which was lodged in a sapling in the hedge. He also picked up a glass vial containing silver sand and a piece of paper on which two words were written in what he supposed to be Russian. In fact, the two words were in classical Greek script and were Adelphos Adelpho, meaning brother to brother. Weird. It gets weirder when they look at the actual parts. Mr. Bryant noticed that the metal fragments he collected glowed in the dark. These and the other finds passed into the possession of a local amateur astronomer, Mr. Headley Robinson. To date, Bufora has been unable to obtain a sight of them. We've also been unable to ascertain the result of Geiger counts said to have been taken at the landing site by Mr. Robinson. A few days after the incident at Hawson Farm, swallows, which settled on telegraph wires near the scene of the landing, fell dead, with wings outstretched in a most unusual posture. Cause of the deaths was not ascertained. Dr. Dole, before his chairman, visited the site and interviewed Mr. Bryant on August 27th, accompanied by the publicity officer, Mr. Lionel Beer. The above account derives mainly from their observations. Some of the scorch marks on foliage were still visible at the time of their visit and were found definitely to be due to the heat and not to blight or other agency. The blue object was observed independently on the night of June 7th by a student in Exeter who wrote to a local journal about it. Glowing in the dark suggests radiation, um, and I love the detail about the birds dying as they alight on the wires. There's a lot going on in this story, but I think the analysis by those who investigated it provides some insight into just how seriously these claims were being taken by the folks at Bufora. 
On the face of it, we seem to be dealing here with a UFO landing like a number of others on record, due to a mechanical or instrumental failure in the UFO necessitating a descent in order that the defect might be rectified. It is not easy, however, to account for some of the stage properties involved. Perhaps the simplest explanation of the metal fragments and the turbine-like fitting is that they fell off or blew off the UFO in the last stages of its descent. The crew might well decide to leave them lying around rather than conduct an eternal hunt for them over strange territory and at the imminent risk of encountering some of the local natives who might have witnessed the landing. It is the enigmatic message in the vial which has me stumped completely. I do not imagine that the UFO denizens converse in classical Greek, or suppose that we do, or that they have developed a seaside holiday craze of depositing messages in bottles and dumping the bottles for strangers to find and puzzle over. Sand is a preservative agent, and the paper in the vial is described as yellowed. May it not be that the paper and vial have nothing to do with the UFO, but were dislodged from some hiding place by its precipitate descent? Have we here some relic of a sentimental schoolboy prank of long ago? Long enough ago, that is, to carry us back to the era when Greek was a compulsory subject in the curriculum of any good private or public school. It is as satisfactory an explanation of the message as any I have been able to devise. They seem to be taking a lot of what Bryant says as true. A lot of it. And that's going to be an issue in the story that you'll want to pay attention to. How much credibility is given to the witness. Buckle relates that Dole and Beer, who interviewed Bryant and signed him up as a Bufora member in a quick and clever bit of marketing, were impressed with his straightforward, honest, and authoritative manner. So that was where the story sat for a while. Buckle relates that a break came when Norman Oliver was working at his membership secretary duties, and he had this idea to send a questionnaire to members to ensure that the organization's records were up to date. One of the questions he included was, have you ever had a sighting or contact of which we do not have the details? As you might expect, he got a ton of responses to the survey, and almost by chance, one of the letters had marked yes to that question with details provided. It was from Arthur Bryant. Dear Sir, many thanks for your membership card, etc. I trust you will find all in order. You will have no doubt observed that in answer to question two, I have put yes, and are perhaps wondering why? I must confess at this stage, during my conversation with Dr. Dole and Mr. Beer, I was tempted to explain my first encounter with beings from space, which occurred on the 24th of April this year. It was during our investigations into the second saucer appearance at Scoriton, which deterred me from imparting my information, due chiefly to their attitude. However, be this as it may, it will not be possible to state here all that took place on the above date. But rest assured that the information I have regarding the motive power of the saucer, its occupants and interior, and the conversation which took place will leave no doubt in the mind of the believer that a new era is opened up. May I state here that it will not be possible for me to entertain any observer or investigator in my home at Scoriton due to the persistent callers, etc., during the last episode. My family were affected to the point of becoming ill, so may I suggest two alternatives, that a questionnaire be sent from Bufora, or that I am available between the hours of 12.30 to 1.30 any day, Monday through Friday. Yours sincerely, E.A. Bryant. Oliver wrote back to Bryant asking for more details, and Bryant sent, in December of 1965, a seven-page letter that Buckle summarizes. The book also includes a reproduction of Bryant's handwritten letter. Buckle reported the following. Bryant wrote saying he had seen a saucer, had met three beings, and had been taken on a conducted tour of the craft. But it was what had been said to him that makes this a case out of the ordinary. One of the three had told him, 
My name is Yamsky. Or at least it sounded something like that. Remember the last paragraph of the obituary to Adamski by Desmond Leslie. But I don't believe, he said, we have by any means seen the last of him. If he is reborn on another planet, he has promised to come back and contact us when possible. With George, anything could happen. And usually does. Adamski had died on 23rd April. Brian's contact was 24th April. The next day. This could have been a coincidence. But Yamsky speaks to Bryant of a Des or Les. Did this refer to Desmond Leslie? Subsequent information gathered left no doubt that were the story true, it could be none other than Adamski returned. And that, dear listeners, is why Scoriton and the Scoriton incident is something other than a routine UFO landing or brief contact encounter. Well, one of the reasons anyway. We'll get to the others. But Yamsky, Adamski, he's back within hours of his death. Maybe. As amazing, or maybe more amazing really, is the revelation that the saucer occupants would bring proof of Mantell. This refers to the, the Mantell incident in the late 1940s when Captain Thomas Mantell of the Kentucky Air National Guard was chasing an unidentified flying object and he, uh, he crashed his P-51 Mustang and was killed. And the Air Force had provided numerous sort of unconvincing and unsatisfying explanations of this. Buckle wonders if the metal pieces Bryant recovered were part of the wreckage of Mantell's fighter. But wait, there's more. Bryant also said that Yamsky warned him of beings from Epsilon who were taking people from Earth for, supposedly, procreation purposes. Yikes. Their interest well and truly peaked. Uh, Buckle and Oliver meet with Brian in person, careful to avoid mentions of any UFO lore or literature so as not to taint his memory of things. His knowledge of the UFO field is poor, although he had heard of recent sightings near Warminster, which we'll be covering in some fashion at some point. Brian tells them about his life, about his work as a security guard at Gibraltar and as a prison guard at Dartmoor for five years, or seven years, it depends on who's talking. Through all this, quote, in speech he was quite voluble, but never out of turn or overexcited. His conversation was warm and energetic, indicating neither extreme extroversion nor extreme introversion of personality. There was no appearance of instability at all. I once met a self-deluded contact, a sad case, whose eyes were glazed and fixed in a hypnotic stare. End quote. Bryant seemed sane. Normal. Just a guy. Just a guy who'd had this weird encounter and who'd been affected by it. The investigators asked him if he had any ill effects, dizziness, or the like. Bryant responded that he had gone to his doctor for migraine headaches, which he had never had before his encounter with the saucer and his occupants. They happened every two days, and he felt a noise like a buzzsaw and experienced double vision. He also talked a bit about Yamsky, saying that he wished Des Les were there and saying that, quote, karma really works. They ended the interview with some word association to see what kind of saucer knowledge Bryant might have. Astronomy. Stars. Mantel. Light, obituary, death, fry, bubble and squeak, hunt, dogs, palomar, panama, gamma, bacon, boas, b-o-a-c, george, fred, saturn, stars, truman, beer, yamsky, saucer, Glastonbury, Time and Sun, Mothercraft, Knitting, Belt, Braces, Zodiac, 
birthdays. You'll recognize some of the saucer-related terms in there. Boas was meant to be a reference to the Antonio vs. Boas case, which is interesting for reasons we'll discuss. Desles, Buckle and Oliver realized, might be Desmond Leslie, Adamski's friend and early collaborator. I also like his identification of the term mothercraft with knitting, because it's a craft that a mother might do. Um, and Now, mothership might have been different. Bryant offered to take a lie detector test, and he points out that the publicity had been annoying, with threatening letters being sent to him that accused him of being a communist, for example. Bryant explained that he had given the parts he had found to the Exeter Astronomical Society to a G.R. Aspen. In the next chapter, there's a recounting of Bryant's story, as Buckle remembered it from their interview. Of particular interest is this interaction with Yamsky. My name is Yamsky, he said. I was under the impression he was a Russian, except that he had a tendency toward an American accent. But when I asked where they had come from, the reply was, we are from Venus. Perhaps it was the look on my face. He turned to the others and said, if only Desles were here, he would understand. It struck me as strange that he would say this, you see. The others had not spoken up to now, but seemed very interested in the sheep, of which there were about 20 to 30 in the adjoining field. Why, I never found out. Perhaps they had never seen sheep before. The sheep themselves did not appear to be at all upset by the presence of the craft, which was odd, because sheep are inclined to panic at the slightest thing. Yamsky went on to say, We have come to give you information. One of our reasons for contacting you is because you are of Romany origin, as am I. I have to give you a message. It seemed that this person had been a friend of Des or Les, and he wanted to tell him that only now did he realize all the work he had put into the Sanskrit. But he was disappointed in Des, because in the last five years he had, quote, changed his attitude. On saying this, his eyes moistened, and he turned aside as if to go inside the craft. I was wondering how it would be possible to impart this information. Yamsky said, We will arrange that he comes to you. I had no knowledge then who Desmond Leslie was. Yamsky went on to say that he and these people were going to bring proof of a wonderful existence and life beyond our understanding. He also spoke of the dangers of forces from another planet, which were taking people from this world for what he described as procreation purposes. When I asked him how we could expect to know when they had arrived, all three were very amused, and Yamsky told me they were already here, in the guise of what we termed poltergeists. Romani, of course, refers to the Roma people, or gypsies, if you want to be old-fashioned and kind of offensive about it. This is one example of something we've seen throughout our saucer travels, of people talking about a genetic or ethnic link between some humans and the space people. And honestly, it's refreshing for such a link not to focus on white folks being the space people. So that's our basic story. And things begin to pick up from here now. Buckle and Oliver work on getting the parts identified, and it just occurs to me that since Bryant's preferred given name was Arthur, these were Art's parts. Uh, Long before Coast to Coast AM had some mysterious artifacts back in the 90s that Art Bell um, labeled Art's parts. So one engineer had already examined the parts. In the opinion of the engineer, he consulted, the pieces were part of an American plane, but probably a multi-engined one as the parts seemed to him rather too large for a single-engined plane. Desmond Leslie weighed in, seeming a bit skeptical of the whole thing, but wanting to remain open-minded. 
He came to the area to meet with Buckle and Oliver and some other Bufora members. Bryant was running late, but they showed Leslie some sketches of the space people, and Leslie noticed that the emblem on Yamsky's belt resembled the strange, sun-like birthmark around his navel that Adamski supposedly had. Leslie also noticed that Bryant had mentioned a purple robe that Adamski had mentioned in an article about his trip to Saturn that was republished in the UK in Orbit magazine, volume four, number three. Everyone was given a robe to wear at the conference table. The one given to me was a delicate blue. In fact, I cannot describe the color with a rose embroidered on the right sleeve. The same robe. Buckle claimed that Bryant did not subscribe to the magazine where this was printed, so how could he know of this robe? Later, when the group meets up with Bryant, he has more information to share. We had first heard about people being taken for procreation purposes in his first letter to Norman. He now told us that Yamsky had given him the name of a family who had vanished from a house in Yeovil. He had hesitated to tell us before, he said, because he was afraid distress might be caused to the family's near relatives. The house was in Ilchester Road, but the number he could not remember. Now, this is a little bit suspicious. Little by little, more information gets dripped out, almost as if Bryant is adding to his story over time to keep Buckle and Oliver on the hook. But I'm cynical, so of course I think that. Buckle and Oliver decide to try and find the house, asking a Bufora member near Yeovil for information. It turns out that there actually had been a TV special about the disappearance of the family, so this wasn't secret knowledge. It was on TV. They asked Bryant if he had seen the TV program, which he denied, saying that he didn't even have a TV. At the time, he got one in November of 65, and the program had been aired on June 23rd of 1965, just a couple weeks after Bryant's encounter. So our intrepid explorers now return to Art's parts. They decide to send them to Leonard Cramp, a Bufara guy and author of Space, Gravity, and the Flying Saucer, a classic UFO book whose title is so boring that I have not bothered to read it. In the meantime, they decide to engage in some more unorthodox methods of investigation. Were the pieces from Mantell's plane, and had they somehow been retrieved by the space people, even taken to Venus? It was quite on the cards that a good psychometrist would reveal something interesting. I therefore made some inquiries and obtained the name and address of a lady in Streatham who is reputed to be an excellent clairvoyant and psychometrist. I was advised to write straight away as she might be heavily booked up. Now, we did an episode on psychometry, the Psychometric Express, a couple years ago. It's basically getting psychic readings from objects. The psychometry is honestly boring and kind of a bust until they hand her a letter from Bryant. And she reports that she senses integrity and kindness, which for Buckle and Oliver hits the nail on the head. That's exactly how they would describe him. Investigations continue with a look at the vial of powder with the paper attached saying Adelphos Adelpho. The vial and sand are normal. There's nothing strange or unearthly about them at all. They also get some news on the airplane parts they had sent to Leonard Cramp for analysis. Leonard Cramp's voice came bright and cheery. Good news, I thought. Then, in the same cheery voice, he went on to say yes. He had managed to get an opinion on the pieces. Two of them had been positively identified as parts of a British-made bombsite computer. The third piece probably belonged to the same instrument. The pieces could not be from a Mustang P-51 because it would never have carried one. The shock of hearing this made my knees sag. I had not been expecting it, and I tried hard to conceal my disappointment. I had to force a light-hearted reply and afterwards felt utterly limp. 
Norman took the news much better than I and did his best to cheer me up. He was more concerned that he had been responsible for involving me in the affair from the beginning. Her description of the emotional aspect of this is fascinating to me. Um, not that it's a fascinating account, really, but it's, it's fascinating that it's there because it's something that we don't see nearly enough in UFO literature. And it seems a little bit crass or at least simplistic to observe that perhaps a writer who's a woman perhaps has a little bit more leeway to give space to this kind of thing, at least in the 1960s. I think there were different expectations at the time. Well, I, it's clear there were different expectations at the time. And it's difficult to imagine um, Don Quixote or Frank Edwards or any of the other serious scientific UFO men of the 1960s, or even the unserious, unscientific UFO men of the 60s writing something like this. It's refreshing. It feels real. It connects you with the author in a way that a lot of UFO books didn't and, and still don't. It's the same sort of thing that I liked about her explaining that, that she had trained as a nurse but left the field to take care of her sick mother. It's this personal aspect that, that brings a little more dimension to it. So then things get weirder. As Norman Oliver is informed that there is a physicist that not only has parts of Mantell's plane, yeah, that's right, but that he had been at Fort Knox and examined the wreckage of Mantell's Mustang at the site. He and his team of scientists, the mystery scientists said, would be happy to help, but they wanted no publicity. Our dynamic duo visit this Dr. N, who insists they call him Scotty. Dr. N is a weird guy launching into a story of his expedition to Tunguska in 1908 to investigate the explosion there, which was the beginning of his interest in UFOs. Then he tells them about his expeditions to Sodom and Gomorrah and three other previously unknown cities that were destroyed and showed them supposed materials from that particular Old Testament firebombing. And he said that between what he saw there and at Tunguska, he believed the, the sources of those explosions, the causes, were the same. He shows them photos of the temples of Angkor Wat, explaining that he thinks the Khmer people who built them might have been aliens. At this point, as a reader, I was wondering what in the name of hell was going on with all this, because Dr. N seems way more interesting than Yamsky, especially when he revealed that he and other retired physicists had formed a group to fund and research topics of which UFOs were a significant part. They kept no written records, he said, but the group was, quote, in possession of a great number of saucer films and photographs, end quote, and had what he claimed was 95% proof that they were alien spacecraft. He was angry at the UFO secrecy from the U.S. government. More relevant to Buckle and Oliver, he claimed to be in possession of some parts of Mantell's plane himself, like, like he said. Buckle bends over backwards to find Dr. N., credible. He's eccentric, but that could be his age. Uh, she says his spelling and grammar were atrocious, 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 yet he was not the only illiterate scientist I had come across, she said. Buckle suspects that perhaps something larger is going on. Could Brian's mind, she wondered, quote, and possibly our own minds have been directed unbeknownst to us so that we acted in accordance with an ordained pattern of events, each decision triggering off the next link in a chain reaction. End quote. So, mind control talk. This is another one of those things I want you to keep in the back of your heads as we go through this story. Something else that feels, well, weird, not real, but not fake. I, I, I don't know. I do know. Well, I know where the story's going and you may not. So that colors how I'm talking about it. And I, I don't want to give things away. Anyway, that, that's a really smooth segue. So something else had been happening. Chapter 12 of the Scorton Mystery opens with a slightly amusing exchange. 
I've got an insertion, said Norman. What? I exclaimed incredulously. Briefly, he told me what had happened. Now, it's not the probing of Norman Oliver. It's something far more interesting. This insertion was a voice super was a voice superimposed on an audio tape recording he had made telling him to go to what buckle said was quote a certain place on a sunday but exactly which sunday was meant was not plain end quote they had been recording interviews and the like and oliver started getting these messages eileen buckle seems to attribute the voices to the space people as she calls them she was excited noted had mixed feelings which she was in her words puzzled by Oliver plays the tape. As the conversations they'd recently had played back, there was a slight click, and a new voice emerged on the tape. It's for yourself. You believe we are playing. My friend, we will play with you more. Hear me. The furlong is long. Be there Sunday week. Overlooking the veil when all are asleep. Before the dark falls on Edburton go, if timing is wrong, why, there you will know. The rhyming is part of the gimmick of this mysterious voice on the tape, and it would go on, she explained, to order Norman to take her along with him to this place. While the whole thing sounds a bit sinister, the recording ends with some reassurance. No hurt will befall, no harm, none to you, if no one is told apart from the two. She comments that it doesn't seem like a human voice, more a machine voice, perhaps a human voice, but disguised somehow. The next weekend, Eileen and Norman drive to Ed Burton and basically get lost wandering around in the dark at two in the morning on a Sunday with nothing weird going on. The next week, they try again, but spare enough time to get to the area in daylight so they actually know where they're going. They climb a hill, taking with them their tape recorder, and at the top of the hill, they played the tape for a bit, rewound, hit record, waited and checked to see if anything was on it. We arrive before two, what will be. We may be prevented from coming, all three. Take care from today in all that you do, and keep well together, divided you'll rue. A time to receive is at the last quarter, as the bright one you see in the bearer of water. Buckle and Oliver tried to interpret what was going on. There was no UFO sighting that Sunday, and Buckle determined that last quarter referred to the moon. The bearer of water was the constellation of Aquarius. They determined that the voice was referring to July 10th, but something else concerned them as well. In that first recording, the voice says, you will believe we are playing, my friend. We will play with you more. Who was playing? They think they knew what was going on or what the play referred to. It happened on May 29th about a month before. During the spring of 1966, near a village called Everly, there had been numerous UFO sightings. Norman Oliver, along with some other UFO investigators, went to Everly. One of the investigators, John Cranson, supposedly possessed, quote, considerable clairvoyant and other psychic powers, end quote. Cranson was uncomfortable with the trip, feeling that something somewhere was wrong. The trip took place regardless, and the group found themselves stopped by police who were stopping and checking every car coming through the area. After this, Cranson abandoned the group, turning back. Oliver and the others continued on, arriving in Everly early in the morning. They found the place already occupied by four or five other cars containing UFO watchers. One of the members of the group, Gary, received, 
that's the word Norman used in relating the story to Eileen, received a message that they were coming. The group waits in anticipation, but nothing happened, and Norman was understandably irritated. They're playing with us, he said crossly. They're playing a trick, making us run around in little circles. I'd like to play a trick on them. Be careful, I warned. They might be listening and might play another trick on you. I never dreamed they really would. Or did they? Something, something trickster, I guess. So July 10th comes. Norman sets up his recorder. He calls Eileen. You know, I think I'm just going to go with first names from here on out. I feel like we're getting to know these folks. So Norman gets a message, calls Eileen, and the message is in Morse code. As Norman decoded it, his arm suddenly becomes paralyzed and his ears started ringing. Then after a few minutes, it goes away. He had two recorders set up, one plugged in, one on batteries. The message only came through on the battery-powered one, for whatever that's worth. The dots and dashes of the Morse code sounded like a tapping, like coconuts being tapped together. And after a call sign of two A's, followed by two C's, repeated four times, the message began. As you have solved our last message, you hear, we regret not to come, but we could not get near. This may happen again, there is no guarantee. We may be quite close to, yet you not us see. Sending, receiving, with practice you'll find, the bond we referred to both have in your mind. Nor yet this alone, as shortly will show, further than that we will not as yet go. At the end of your week in twenty days' time, a chance that we meet you when dawn is in trine. Please keep still all between the two and hope that we may see. We'll tell you when you may reveal to others of the three. Above all, keep together. We repeat it again. All problems you'll solve remaining as twain. From your car to the bridge through the woods that are new. Over grids and a ford through gorleys the two. A beggar you'll pass. Then by the three trees. Turn to E. Linwood. Go past the inn, please. Then, where the trees clear stop near them you ought. Between ten and midnight for time will be short. Put tape on if nothing is seen for an hour. If right, more directions, this lies in our power. From here, this is for your young lady alone. Cease to interpret. She'll try on her own. We tried to come, but we couldn't. There's another cryptic clue about a coming date, directions, and a special message just for Eileen. Your writings will pass your greatest hopes. The result will be outstanding. But relax yourself from time to time, and be not too demanding. She's relieved by this, being insecure about her writing skills, which, by the way, she shouldn't be. Uh, The book is a joy to read in a way that few UFO books are. The final lines of the recording were, in her words, somewhat disturbing. It's left to you, if your partner you tell, of what we have just said. The decision is yours, remembering how our messages have read. The wrong one make, and you will find you both. We tried to make it sound kind of like she described with the tape going weird after the word both. 
Eileen says there's only one way she thinks that could have ended. The wrong one make, and you will find you both will soon be dead. I mean, it makes sense. The, the rhyme makes sense. And, and this is, this is strange. This is, str- she talks about it being the space people. Why are the space people using Morse code? Why are the space people giving specific directions using local place names? Why are the space people doing any of this? It, it sounds like somebody is playing with them. It sounds like somebody is doing odd things. It sounds like somebody is trying to direct them in certain ways, but it does not sound like space brothers. They spend some time trying to interpret this new set of instructions. They believed the line about the bond between them referred to some sort of telepathy. So they tried an experiment where they both in their separate homes tried to send messages to each other. Norman experienced something strange as a result. Next time we met, Norman described a strange visual impression he experienced whilst relaxing drowsily after the telepathy experiment. It began immediately, the 15 minutes were up. He found himself driving amongst trees and approaching a kind of low bridge. Turning sharp left, he proceeded up a slope or a hill, and the narrow wood became winding and undulating. Here, there were clear patches without trees. He carried on until he went down a hill at the bottom of which was an inn, but he had the impression that it was more than an inn, that it could also be a shop. Nearby was a letterbox. He felt it to be an old-fashioned type attached to some post or pole, the kind with VR on it. There seemed to be a number of people about, and he had the idea that there was a camping site nearby. He continued on and came once more into some trees, and then the dream stopped. Eileen interprets this as further instructions from the three contacts, since the taped message was so difficult to understand. Like Dr. N, this stuff is far more fascinating than the Yamsky-Adamsky angle to me. Their investigation continues. They interview a Philip Rogers. Rogers began having strange experiences after reading Adamsky's book Inside the Spaceships. He began recording what he called space sounds, audio phenomenon that appeared on tape when he recorded, but that could not be heard otherwise. After listening to some of them, our investigators began to wonder if their experiences and how different they were from Rogers' recordings maybe weren't as connected to nice Venusian space brothers after all. Could they be Al Bender's three men? That wasn't a pleasant thought. Suddenly, out of the gloom, three dark figures were walking swiftly toward me. My heart missed several beats. They've come to get us, I thought in panic. <sighs> Relief. The three dark shapes turned out to be forest ponies, stalking rapidly through the bracken. The stress is getting to Eileen and Norman. Then they try to obtain another recording and hear the following. We'll continue to call you. We cannot come through. Then be at the room of the lady at two in the morning, days eighteen from now. We'll inform you of what to reveal, when, and how. Now, Eileen is confused. For the first time, they've tried to set up a meeting with her at a time she's not available when they want her to be. She was scheduled to be on a trip with Philip Rogers, visiting other Flying Saucer fans. Rogers was blind, and she was reluctant to cancel on him because she was sort of going to take him down there and and help him out. At this point, she has a, a visceral reaction to hearing the second verse of this tape recording. We listened to the second stanza, of which I had previously only heard snatches. I turned cold. 
For heaven's sake, get us out of here. We've got the wrong lot. They're the baddies. Get us out of the forest, out of the countryside. Don't stop until we get back to London. Now, I may be missing it, but I don't think she actually prints what the second stanza or verse is in the book. So we don't know what freaked her out so much, but she expands on her feelings. On hearing the strange message in the new forest, the horrible conviction seized me that the entities behind it were not our friends. It seemed to me that in a subtle kind of way, they were trying to cause a rift in what had been a successful working partnership whilst pretending to help by giving advice. My fear was due to not knowing how they might retaliate now that I had rumbled their schemes. What powers did they possess that enabled them to know so much about us? To put mental impressions into Norman's mind and paralyze his arm? What else might they do? Things are getting weird. Weird and dark. We'll be right back. We kept the uh, the break a little later this time because... Um, Well, I'm not sure how long this is going to be when we're done with it, so I decided just to put it here. Next time, at the suggestion of a listener, we're going to look at that classic of publishing, Fate Magazine, particularly Fate in the 50s and the 40s, but mostly the 50s. You can check out past episodes, read some reviews of saucer-related stuff, and support the show at saucerlife.com. You can also support us through the link in the show notes, and thank you very much to those who've donated in the past. We very much appreciate it. As always, we're on Twitter and Instagram at Saucer Life, and you can email us at thesaucerlife at gmail.com, or you can contact us by post at Chizo Media, P.O. Box 68, Grand Blank, Michigan, 48480. And the show is, as always, available anywhere you can find podcasts. So, Eileen and Norman had kept the tape messages secret, as asked by their contacts, Because they wanted to follow instructions, they wanted to meet the space people. If you don't do what you're asked, you're not going to get any far. But Eileen wanted out. She wanted nothing to do with them, she said. She thinks they're evil. Their friend Philip thinks they're a nuisance. Not evil, a nuisance. And they can be safely ignored. Norman isn't sure what to think, but he's willing to go to the next meeting alone. Eileen recorded a message of her own for the beings to explain why she's not there. Apologies for my absence tonight, if your intentions were good. I cannot leave a blind man on his own, helpless in an unfamiliar town. I'd doubtless have come if I could. Your messages last have left me aghast. I'm wondering what your intent is. If mischief was meant and evil you're bent, I'll have nothing to do with bad entities. That's not too bad. While he's away, Norman sends Eileen a telegram trying to persuade her not to ignore the coming appointment. He's heard the voice again but not on tape. He heard it in his head. Like his friend Gary when they were at Everly. The voice said, she must come. She has to come. Repeated in his head several times. There was also another tape message. This one also in Morse code. We abandoned verse. Time too short. It misled you. Our message tested reactions in part, in part telling future events. Your paper observer near truth Necessary for you both to clear your minds of deception or mental contact difficult. Worry clouds brain. Your book in danger from yourself. The man has spoken true. We hear the lady's message. We are sorry for the blind man. We are not evil but tried to prevent personal complications from stopping book. This is now in danger from yourselves. Repeat. 
you will not be impregnated by us. It is possible an earth man has already done so. Strange you should be engaged at our message. You are not speaking true. You try to hide your own actions and you cannot. We wanted both together for you to see the others our crews. Special danger of complications of your own making over next three or four weeks, especially for Lady. She will know these can and must be avoided. We shall see. Eileen laughs this off. She's not pregnant. But her contempt, she says, was strengthened. These were not good people, wherever they're from. She is increasingly convinced this is sinister. And she's becoming ever more disillusioned, she says, disappointed and bewildered. Around every corner, there had been seeming revelations that were then ripped away. From the metal pieces to the messages, there's a growing sense that this has all been an elaborate put-on. Dr. N, or Scotty, turns out to be a total fraud. He strings them along for a while, lying continuously, and they find that he fabricated his supposed scientific credentials. Is he a part of whatever weirdness is harassing them? Are he and Brian sort of in cahoots? Did he use Brian for some reason? Eileen, as we near the end of the book, is speculating on all sorts of possibilities. The voices had begun shortly after the first meeting with Dr. N. Were the pieces of wreckage planted, that's her word, planted, on Bryant to draw them to Dr. N in the same kind of wild goose chase they had led the pair on via their messages? Why, she asks, should the space people want to deceive us? Could they be trying to distract our attention from their real purpose in coming here? If you're like me, At this point, there's an urge to shout, it's not the space people. Come on, you're so close to figuring this out. Or not figuring it out because I'm not sure we've figured anything out yet. But oh, it's frustrating because these are not acting like space people. These are acting like humans. Then Norman Oliver takes over to give his perspective on the messages. He's unwilling to commit to any particular theories, but there's one suggestion that people have brought up that he thought was slightly ridiculous. A quite novel suggestion has been made about the tapes, and that is that they were a prank, a hoax, but not one directed at us by space people. Instead, directed at us by space children as their idea of a celestial practical joke. Whilst not outside the bound of possibility, Indeed, what is? I cannot take this seriously. To me, this reads a bit like it's a dismissal of Philip Rogers' theories about, you know, they're mischievous, they're not evil, without explicitly naming or, or putting down Rogers. Norman considers the possibilities that he had been under some sort of self-induced hypnosis or recorded the tape subconsciously. He doesn't believe so, but he says it's possible. Sometimes the voice sounded like his, he thought but other people didn't think it sounded like him. Perhaps it was some kind of astral entity. He's unsure exactly what's going on, but between the experiences of Bryant, Gary's messages beamed into his head at Everly, and his own strange experiences, Norman is convinced something is going on. There's a chapter that then sort of tries to tie the disappearances from the house in Yeovil to other strange experiences and encounters, including the abduction Antonio Villas-Boas uh, underwent in South America that we've discussed in the show before. And that ties into the, the reproduction aspect or procreation aspect as well. And as the book draws to a close, Eileen, along with Norman and some other UFO investigators, make another visit to Scoraton in order to record another interview with Arthur Bryant. 
One of the key aspects of this last interview in the book is, is trying to establish that Bryant had no prior knowledge of Adamski's adventures and to get more details about his visit to the spacecraft and the robe that he saw that supposedly is the same one that Adamski spoke of. If he didn't know anything about Adamski, how would he know about the robe? Bryant discusses visiting a doctor, too. Um, he mentioned it before with the migraines, but he says, quote, it was to convince myself that I was, you know, all right, which isn't exactly the way he explained it earlier. And he also says that the doctor, you know, told him about a sighting he'd experienced while giving him the checkup. And then the tape runs out and the meeting ends. As the book draws to a close, Desmond Leslie chimes in with some final thoughts on Bryant's story and shares the Adamski Foundation's view on the entire story. The Adamski Foundation seem convinced it has nothing to do with GA, and that these might be the mischievous space people of whom GA warned us on several occasions. It seems corruption is not entirely confined to this planet, which is a shame, and for reasons best known to themselves, there may be a group operating who wish to deceive and confuse. Why, God alone knows. This seems to place them on a cosmic level with the astral entities who delude people at mediocre seances. Some nice sort of needle threading there from the George Adamski Foundation as they distance themselves from Brian's connection with Adamski while also reinforcing Adamski's claims. So the last interview with Bryant ended just as Eileen was going to press Bryant on how much he had read about UFOs. Even though the interview ended abruptly, the tape ran out, Eileen is confident that even if Bryant had read more on UFOs than he remembered reading, there was no one he knew from whom he could have borrowed the magazine from which he would have learned about Adamski's Saturnian robe. She also discussed the supposed physical similarity between Bryant and Adamski. Many others have noted this uncanny resemblance of Bryant to Adamski. Can this be the key to this perplexing puzzle? Has Bryant a special affinity with Adamski? Perhaps he was chosen to become a channel through which the ego of the reincarnated Adamski could continue his work. Some of Bryant's impressions might be the result of this process at work, garbled statements at present but having a foundation in truth. Another possibility is that a lot more information was fed into him by hypnotic means at the time of his contact. Bryant assured me that he had experienced no break in consciousness throughout the time, but there is one curious part of the story which lends food for thought. In the few moments that he jumped from the craft and walked a few steps away, he says the three occupants had already fixed their helmets into place. Could this indicate a memory lapse at this point? If so, what took place at that time? I am constantly struck by the desire to attribute this event to almost anything but a hoax. But it's interesting that Eileen's notions seem to be expanding beyond mere UFO cliches. It's moving in a direction that is decidedly more odd than I was expecting before I read it. The book ends on something of an inconclusive note. Bryant's story remains unsolved and perhaps unsolvable. Eileen speculates in a number of different directions. The space people did this to illustrate that Adamski's story had been true. Malevolent space people did this to discredit Adamski. Lots of space people. But a consistent theme that whoever is engaging in this behavior is doing so in a manner that is anything but straightforward or easy to understand. In late spring 1967, just as Eileen's book was about to come out, Bryant became ill. He had a brain tumor. Despite surgery to remove the tumor, he died on June 24, 1967. In 1968, 
Norman Oliver published his own account of further investigation into the Scoraton story and Brian's claims. Sequel to Scoraton was a slim booklet of 44 pages and opened with Brian's brief account of his life, including seven years of prison guard service and service in World War II. The biography is followed with this note from Norman Oliver. Some of the facts given above are known to be correct. Others are known to be incorrect. Most of the war and pre-war details are unchecked, but it was thought the reader would like to have biographical details as given by Bryant himself. Ah, intrigue. Norman explains that he's writing this booklet to update readers on investigations that happened after Eileen's book was published, and he goes to considerable lengths to put over Eileen's work and says that this update isn't a reflection on her book, The Scoraton Mystery. But Norman has some problems with the story, now that he's done some additional digging. He originally believed Bryant, but as time went on, he found Bryant to be somewhat less trustworthy than he appeared. Colin McCarthy, for example, after meeting Bryant for the first time in November 66, said to us, quote, I believe this man is genuine. And again, on page 275, Miss Buckle writes, quote, Colin asked me whether I noticed his eyes. They never narrowed when answering any of our questions as a liar's do. The expression on his face was as one trying to look back and recall the past. If this man is a hoaxer, Colin said, he's the best I've ever seen, and I've come across some good ones. This was one of the things that was later to set me wondering, as it also was exactly Brian's expression in interviews, when he was to give completely false replies to questions when I was fully aware of the correct answers. He then also seemed utterly sincere. Therefore, his expression could be no real guide as to whether his answers were true or false. Norman gives an overview of Bryant's story in the second chapter, and then in chapter three, which is called Claims, Proofs, and Investigations, leads off with this. It should be understood that Bryant himself did not claim that Yamsky was Adamsky. He did not claim Des or Les was Desmond Leslie. He did not claim that the pieces were parts of Mantell's plane. At the time we visited him at Newton Abbott in December of 1965, he claimed to have read no UFO books at all. After questioning him for a couple of hours, we told him of the possible implications and he seemed astonished, though it now appears reasonably certain he would have known of them. The story of the robe was related by Bryant in January after the first meeting. Bryant certainly did claim that in June 65 he had found the pieces, some of them embedded in the field opposite Hawson Farm Cottage where he saw the blue light and where he stated he was living at the time. You can feel Norman's skepticism growing, and he's still, or actually increasingly, concerned about a few things. The most significant, I think, is that house in Yeovil, where the family disappeared, and there were hints that, from Yamsky telling the story to Bryant, that they were taken for procreation purposes. So, remember that Bryant had told Eileen and Norman the name of the Air Force man who had lived there and said he'd been told all this by Yamsky. And when confronted with the fact that the story had been broadcast on TV as part of a news program, Bryant claimed he didn't possess a TV at the time the story was broadcast. This was in the mid-60s, so there wouldn't have been home video recorders. No one could have taped it for him. And that might seem like an obvious thing, but we sort of take delayed viewing for granted and, and have done so since the 80s. Same thing with reruns. They weren't common on British television in the 60s. Um, I know that from being a fan of British television in the 60s. 
The program aired in June. Bryant claims to have gotten his TV in November and, and had a card signed by the shopkeeper where he bought it from, sort of verifying this. He also talked to a Bufora friend who had some suspicions, Norman did that is, wondering if Bryant could have obtained the pieces of, of aircraft that had been found at the scene from a military surplus store. A shrewd remark in view of later disclosures, Norman says. Norman then returns to the, uh, the mysterious vial containing the, the sand and labeled Adelphos Adelpho. The vial is not old. It's of recent manufacturer, he found, made between 1957 and 1952. And it's, it's sort of a glass vial with, with, a, with a sort of pointy end and, uh, and, and labels. And they were used as markers for labeling plants. Something Bryant, as a, a gardener, and in this instance, I think the word gardener really sort of translates to American English as, as groundskeeper, um, landscaping person, sort of thing that Bryant would have. Uh, the, the words Adelphos, Adelpho, uh, Norman believed, could be related to plants, but he couldn't find anything definite. Still, he's starting to think that there is more to this story than he first thought. By nature, I dislike loose ends, and the identification of the vial had been one. Were there other loose ends that might possibly be settled just as easily? On thinking over things very carefully, I decided we had taken Brian's reputation for integrity far too much on trust. In the last analysis, we had only his word for most of what he had told us, the sole supporting character evidence being from Major Boycott of the Tradesman's Arms, who was quoted in The Independent as saying it would be completely out of character for Mr. Bryant to start a publicity stunt. He is a very level-headed and intelligent man. So now Norman starts writing some letters. He writes to the farmer who owned the field where the sighting took place, asking if he knew of, of anything that might have caused the the marks and scorching on his property, marks that had been attributed to the craft. The farmer, whose name was Weber, replied, Dear Sir, thank you for your courteous letter of the third instant, which, as you say, was somewhat of a surprise, as I was hoping the incident you mentioned has now been forgotten. The explanation of the matter is quite simply that the burning of the grass was caused by a bonfire of hedge clippings and parings, which also slightly burnt the hedge. The tree referred to has been dead for some years, and the blackening was most likely caused by lightning. It should be quite obvious to any sensible person that the suggestion which has been put forward is the product of a fertile imagination, as on inspection of the spot in question, the reason for the scorching is quite apparent. I sincerely hope the matter is now closed, as I am getting a little tired of people coming and going on my property as and when they feel inclined without permission. Yours faithfully, D. Weber. Farmer Weber isn't putting up with any saucer-based nonsense at all here. Norman's also been checking up on Brian's employment history. He learns that Brian was not employed as a prison officer for seven years, but for seven weeks. Brian's credibility, in Norman's opinion, is decreasing. He also discovers that a man named Goundry Clark, who's a Bufora friend of his, uh, of Norman's, who had talked to Bryant around the time of the initial 1965 investigation, had invited Bryant over and let him borrow some books and magazines. It turns out that Clark was a subscriber to the magazine with the story about Adamski's purple Saturnian robe. It's possible, Norman acknowledges, not probable, but possible, he says, that Bryant could have read this story and gotten that detail. Norman also writes to the doctor Bryant saw for his headaches, which sort of, you know, makes me wonder what 
patient doctor privacy laws were like at this time, although the doctor sort of gets around it by, by saying he doesn't really remember the medical reason that uh, that Bryant came to visit. Um, and their correspondence is not about medical stuff, but it's about the, the UFO stuff that was related. Because you'll remember, Bryant said, my doctor has had all these, these flying saucer experiences, such as blah, 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 and blah, blah, blah. So that's what they're talking about, not potentially confidential medical information. So I, I guess I guess it's okay. The doctor writes back saying that while he had experienced flying saucer encounters and that he was a flying saucer believer, they were nothing like what Bryant had related. The doctor says, quote, I feel that Mr. Bryant's reports are completely inaccurate and certainly some of his statements concerning my experiences are completely untrue. There's a postscript that informs Norman that the doctor's partner, a medical partner, had employed Bryant as a gardener and handyman and that he is, quote, a notoriously bad witness and can tell a tale, end quote. And also, this period of employment overlaps with when Bryant had been claiming to have been working at the prison. So elements of Bryant's story are sort of, are sort of falling apart. And at this point, Norman decides he needs to talk to Bryant again, trying to clarify and, and, and see if Bryant keeps to the same stories. Now, Norman makes, makes clear he wasn't trying to confront or challenge Bryant, just wanted to see what Bryant would say, particularly about the conflicting claims with the doctor. And, and Bryant's stories, they, they don't match up. They, they just don't. We return again to the Yeovil house where the family disappeared from. We turn to that topic. Norman located some newspaper and magazine stories that tell what happened. The couple who lived in the house were usually fighting, neighbors remembered. The wife left, took their son, moved to London to live with her mother. The husband ended up in a mental hospital. There's no aliens. There's not even really a mystery anymore. To that, at least. So Norman has one last meeting with Bryant, who still seems completely sincere even when he's saying things that Norman knows are false, as, as Norman sort of, sort of alluded to earlier. His, his stories, um, his replies to Norman's questions are, are at considerable odds with what Norman has learned from his investigations. And then, only a month after that last conversation, Bryant is diagnosed with his brain tumor, or with a brain tumor. Um, Norman goes to visit the Bryant family, while Bryant is in the hospital and is surprised by something he learns from Mrs. Bryant. A copy of the Scoriton mystery had been sent to Bryant at his home and, as he was then in the hospital, had been received by Mrs. Bryant, who, by the time I saw her, had read the whole book. Apparently, her husband had told her the majority of the story, but speaking of it as a science fiction story that was to form the basis of the book in which Miss Buckle and I were collaborating— Referring back to the incident in the previous November when she had suddenly gone out of the room on hearing Colin McCarthy mention Yamsky, she told me it was then she realized that part of the story, at any rate, was being taken as fact and not as fiction. Now, this is interesting to me, partly because I, I think I mentioned this in, in one of our Adamski episodes. George Adamski's contact stories um, in many ways echoed an earlier science fiction novel he wrote called Pioneers of Space. So I'm not saying there's any any connection. I'm not saying this was some sort of Yamsky thing, but this is another one of those weird parallels of, of the, the sort of overlapping of fact and fiction in these sorts of situations. 
In continuing to talk with Mrs. Bryant and, uh, and, and the Bryant children, Norman also learns that the family actually did have a television at the time of the broadcast about the Yeovil House mystery. In fact, they'd had it for a couple years by that point. The whole family watched the program. And the, uh, the show makers, the producers, said, if you have any ideas about what might have happened, please write to us. And Bryant even wrote into the producers. He was really sort of you know, intrigued by this story. It isn't something Yamsky told him. And the aircraft pieces? Mrs. Bryant said that before all this happened, they had purchased some stuff from a naval surplus company. And the pieces could have been from that, she said. So a lot of this seems to be falling apart. Norman had talked to some doctors he knew, and they told him that it was possible that the brain tumor was causing hallucinations and could have been for some time before Bryant even knew there was a tumor. And it's possible that he could have been weaving things he saw in his daily life or or experiences he had. He, He could have been just sort of weaving these into his story about the saucer. So not necessarily consciously hoaxing, but sort of confabulating something based on all of these things that were around him, the surplus parts, the burned field, the TV program about the house in Yeovil. Now, something else Norman gets into is um, the fact that he had written up some of this investigation previously for the newsletter Spacelink. And understandably, his former investigative partner, Eileen Buckle, had some things to say about it. To those who have read the book, however, there must appear to be the comic spectacle of a former leading exponent doing a hurried about turn, scuttling out with a face-saving gesture, confronted by new evidence which would seem to knock the bottom out of the whole story. This view would be somewhat justified, for Norman Oliver, having stuck his neck out somewhat dangerously in the first instance, has now gone to the other extreme and is leaning over backwards to discredit Bryant and to publicize his dissociation from the claims. His motivations are best known to himself. So there's some bitterness there, and I, I can sort of I can sort of see that because uh, Norman had been very much on board with all this, especially the weirder aspects and investigating those weirder aspects. And now he says, "Well, you know, maybe it's not all there." But his his investigation is good, and it's it's fairly thorough. So then Norman offers his explanation as to what might have been the sequence of events, and he he emphasizes this is speculation. So in December of 1964 were those sightings in Warminster, which were well publicized. Bryant then has his sighting in June of 1965, Norman says, with his imagination maybe being triggered or fired by the Warminster sightings. And he decides that his story would be more believable if he plants the the pieces there on the ground, the vial and the, the mechanical parts. He tells his story to the, uh, the, his fellow gardeners, his co-workers, and one of them tells him to report it to the local astronomical society. And from there, we go to the, the Bufora investigation and, and then all of these things. And Norman believes the other details were, were, were things Bryant added as the investigations went on, trying to make the story into something bigger than it was. He doesn't deny that Bryant may have actually had a sighting or an encounter of some time. But by October of 65, Norman believes, Bryant had a story pretty much, the story pretty much straight in his head. And then the Bufora questionnaire shows up and he submits his response. And Norman believes that Bryant probably thought he would just get another visit from a couple investigators. But the the story snowballs, as we see, and it, it just, there's no, there's no point at which Bryant can actually jump off this train without 
really looking bad. Norman again emphasizes that he still doesn't know how much the tumor could have affected these events and also repeats that this is informed speculation on his part rather than definite fact. The tumor was a troubling factor. As before a journal editor, John Cleary Baker wrote when sort of summarizing the Scoriton incident in, uh, in the journal. As of now, my feeling is that something like the following might be a reasonable verdict on Scoriton. The Scoriton contact tale cannot be true at face value. It is possible that the whole affair was the result of a hoax organized by E.A. Bryant and attributable to the brain tumor from which he suffered and which eventually killed him. There are, however, indications that third parties were involved and that these may have been concerned to discredit private UFO research in general and Bufora in particular. Was the tumor responsible for the UFO or the UFO? for the tumor. That is a more trenchant question than he realized at the time, probably, as we'll see. Eric Biddle, another Bufora guy, had the following conclusions to offer as well. One, we can take the story as true in the way that Bryant told it, that he had a visit from benevolent beings who would eventually use him as a vehicle for the disclosure of revelations destined to be of great importance to the world. Two, We can say that Bryant was a fraud, pure and simple, and that he made up the whole story after reading some UFO literature, and possibly after a genuine UFO sighting. Three, as we know that Bryant was suffering from a brain tumor, we can accept that his alleged experience was hallucinatory, or four, we can say that the whole of Bryant's experience was hallucinatory in the sense it was the result of hypnotic influence exercised by some extraterrestrial intelligence whether connected with UFOs or not, for some purpose of their own. We can only conjecture what that purpose might be, but it is at least possible that it may be a rather clumsy attempt to lull us into a false sense of security as to the real eventual aims of the UFO entities. Norman says that his own opinion is most in line with option two here, a hoax based on a relatively simple sighting. The booklet ends with Philip Rogers' lengthy defense of Bryant's story and concludes that the space people were involved in whatever aspects of the case really don't seem to match what Bryant says, particularly the aircraft uh, the aircraft thing, uh, the aircraft parts. Um, so basically, this was a hoax, but it was a hoax sort of carried out or abetted by the space aliens. Their motive, quote, to confuse us and cause dissension, blinding us to the true purpose of the space people, end quote. Sure, Philip. Sure. And there the matter lay. There would be a few references to the case here and there, such as this one from Jimmy Goddard in his book Cosmic Friends. My contactors have always insisted that the Scoriton contact claim is true, despite the evidence put forward in Sequel to Scoriton. There was a very elaborate conspiracy involved which fooled even Norman Oliver. Bryant was ill at the end of his life, But his greatest suffering was the loneliness of isolation. Even his wife turned against him because of his contact, and the investigators, or one of them at least, was caused to disregard the claim. I can only hope the space people found means to give him comfort. In the interest of time, I'd like to jump ahead to 1978. 
1978. That's when researcher Rich Reynolds, who still blogs on the UFO topic, I believe, interviewed a man with the initials BN. Just to jump ahead on the suspense, the man's name was Bosco Nedeljkovic. Not, as I want to keep calling him, football great Bronco Nagurski. Uh, Reynolds had two, I can keep calling him Bronco Nagurski in my mind, and then I get confused and call him Bronco Lubich, uh, who was a, a pro wrestling great. Anyway, Bosco. We'll just call him Bosco because I'm, I'm not sure Nedeljkovic is the right way to, to pronounce uh, Nedeljkovic. Reynolds had two conversations, phone conversations with Bosco, who, who they had been introduced by a mutual acquaintance. And Bosco claimed to have worked for the Agency for International Development, which was part of the State Department. He moved to South America from Yugoslavia, and he was, in 1978, working for the Department of Defense. Reynolds, in his report, notes that this employment information has been confirmed, so he really does have these sort of insider connections. Bosco wanted to talk to Reynolds about a number of things, about the CIA and other intelligence activities, but for our purposes, the interesting thing is Scoriton. Bosco remembered the case from a 1969 briefing he received from the CIA. He was told that in 1968, a man in the UK died from, quote, excessive experimentation. They called this the 1965 Devonshire episode. Uh, Scoriton was in Devonshire, and uh, the date's wrong on the death. It was 1967, not 1968. But, you know, what's a year, right? Um, there's you know another document out there that, that says it's 1966 that he died. So I'm not going to be too worried about that. So Bosco saw reports that referenced a microwave accident with, quote, admonitions to CIA and NSA operatives about the injudicious use of microwave technology, end quote. The way Bosco recalled the briefing, the Devonshire episode involved a man having a sighting and giving material to, quote, one of the British UFO groups. Now, I've bolded this next uh, quotation, this next sentence in the script here, so pay attention. Quote, CIA operatives on the staff, or as members, contacted the man about the sighting, end quote. Would the CIA infiltrate a UFO organization? Well... As my correspondent who sent me this documentation told me, you know, what happened with Leah Haley? What about Milabs and military abductions? Why is the CIA involved? Well, it's in another country. It's outside the borders of the U.S., so that's their jurisdiction. Not that those jurisdictional lines have always been honored. But, yeah, um, with the Leah Haley story, MUFON was involved in some shady stuff, um, selling uh, abduction reports and records and investigation files to people who had connections to the intelligence community. Jack Brewer over at the UFO Trail has been working on connections between intelligence people and the earliest days of NICAP as well, back in those pre-Donald Kehoe days. So the CIA people contact the man, and it's, it's Bryant, clearly, and they take him to London to have tell him to have his story they tell him he's having his story verified with truth seeking drugs. Bosco reports that a doctor used hallucinogenic drugs and microwave stimulation in sort of a, a plan to make the hallucinations seem as real as possible. Now, you know if you've read any of those extremely long exp- extremely detailed and sometimes boring MK Ultra documents that this is not outside the realm of possibility. They worked with these sorts of technologies all the time. And I'm wondering if the doctor Bryant told the investigators he saw, who was the you know, had his own UFO sightings, I wonder if that doctor had any connections to the doctor 
in London. Um, the Dr. Bryant talks to our investigators about was local, I believe, but I wonder if there's a connection. So remember this question? Was the tumor responsible for the UFO or the UFO for the tumor? How about the CIA was responsible for the tumor, which caused the UFO? Bosco told Reynolds that this was far from the only time things like this had happened, but as far as he knew, this was the only one to result in a death directly caused by the experimentation. No disciplinary action was taken against the operatives. And there's some other good information in the Bosco papers that we'll talk about on the Saucer Afterlife installment that follows from this episode, along with a little more about Bosco himself. He had an interesting career. Linked in the show notes is a story Nick Redfern did on the Bosco connection as well. One last thing. In 2004, in the new Bufora Journal, Norman Oliver resurfaced and gave one last rundown of the Scoriton case. It largely followed what he wrote in sequel to Scoriton, but also expands on the idea that this had been a hoax, not carried out solely by Bryant, but aided and abetted by three others. Ivor McKay, Bufora's chairman, Major Boycott, who owned the Tradesman's Arms Pub, and Bufora committee member Ken Rogers. My correspondent also suggests that Jeffrey Dole, a Bufora chair who had been one of the initial investigators, might have been involved as well. Why? Well, Oliver, Norman Oliver, believes that this might have been a test of the effectiveness of their investigators, to, a way to test Bufora's capabilities. There's a lot in that article and links to the two Bufora newsletters, which have been scanned, as, as so many other things have, by the Archives for the Unexplained in Sweden. Links to those are in the show notes as well. So my last question about Bufora is which of these men who might have been involved in this hoax were the CIA operatives Bosago discussed in his conversation with Reynolds? Were they all CIA operatives or sources? Was it just one of them? I'm not sure. Not sure we know. So where does that leave us? This leaves us, I think, and, and you know I'm, I'm loath to sort of draw conclusions on these, uh, on these episodes and this show, but I, I think it leaves us in a position of, of finding another example of how intelligence agencies have manipulated the UFO phenomenon and belief in the UFO phenomenon since almost the very beginning. I'm, I, I do not know whether or not uh, Arthur Bryant had an actual sighting or encounter. That's, I don't want to say it's almost beside the point, but it's not as significant as, as the fact that this might have been a CIA attempt at mind control experimentation. Um, we've heard a lot over the years about military abductions and things like that, but uh, seeing this overlap with contactees is, is a, little, a little less common, probably because contactee stuff is a little, uh, a little less common. But there's so much here that points to something earthly rather than something unearthly. The voices on the tapes, um, using Morse code, having, as I said, you know, a, a knowledge of the local area, it, it all points to somebody who was on the scene. The technology to, to overlay the voice on the tape, that sounds like something, I don't know, that somebody on earth could cobble together. The voices being beamed directly into people's minds. That's something that I'm pretty sure MK ultra types were working on the, the physical effects on, on people like Norman, that the sort of paralysis in his arm that he experienced when translating some of these uh, Morse code messages. I mean, again, the fact they used Morse code, why would the aliens be using Morse code? It, it doesn't make any sense. 
Um, those effects that that uh, that Norman Oliver experienced uh, could have been as well as as well as um, Bryant's headaches could have been caused by by non lethal weapons technology that was being being used or, or being tested. It's all very terrestrial and creepy, and I do need to say that that Bryant's headaches. You know, could have been caused by the brain tumor as well. But, uh, but things like the, the arm paralysis and, and those things are, um, are, are suspicious. Uh, the, the times in the book when Eileen mentions a sense of dread, I, I think they, I'm getting this from, I think I've mentioned this before, Alfred Hitchcock and the three investigators books I read when I was a kid. The, I think one of the first books, they, it was a haunted house and, and people had these experiences in a haunted house. And it turns out that subsonic tones from a pipe organ were being used to generate these feelings of anxiety. So sonic weapons to, to have those effects on people, you know, those are, those are a thing in the future. We'll be doing more on some of these CIA connections, but in the meantime, I think we need to continue to take seriously the, the idea, the notion that some, not all, I'm not saying all, some of what has been reported over the years might have been contrived in some way. And perhaps those programs never ended. Thank you to the mysterious M who provided a copy of Rich Reynolds report on his conversations with Bosco. These were apparently on the internet at one time, but no longer. Thanks to him also for supplying me with a copy of sequel to Scoriton. It's much appreciated. This episode would not have existed without those additional materials and his additional thoughts. The associate producer of The Saucer Life is Simpson J. Hanover III. The Saucer Life is a production of Chizo Media LLC, where we're working for the good of mankind along the lines of truth. Till next time, keep watching the skies, because the skies are watching you.